When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, this is Jeff. In this episode, Rebecca Shinsky, Vanessa Diaz, and I talk about the mess that is American Dirt, especially after Oprah selected it for her book club. Right after we finished recording, Flatiron released a statement apologizing for some of the promotional efforts, for some of the things that they did in the rollout of the book. Um, They also announced that they were canceling the book tour Jeannie Cummings was going to go on, citing safety concerns. There's a lot to unpack there. We didn't get to it because we didn't know it exists. Rebecca and I will probably get to it um, in the next edition of the regular news show. But just wanted to say that, yep, we did see it. I also didn't say there are links in the show notes to several interesting pieces, including Daniel Hernandez's overview at the LA Times, um, Lit Hub's petition signed by 83 authors asking Oprah to retract the pick, and a couple other things. If you want to read a little bit more, you can check those out. Um, just want to acknowledge we heard it because some of the stuff we say doesn't make as much sense, or or we would say it differently if we knew that this apology and announcement was coming. Okay, let's do a sponsor, and we're going to get into it. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read, and I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest-paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. All right, welcome to the Book Riot Podcast. Today's show um, is mostly, if not all, we'll actually see how long we go, about American Dirt and the 
let's call it a conversation that has emerged around the book. Um, we will probably get into th- words that are other than conversation as we get into the show. Rebecca Shinsky is joining me today, Vanessa Diaz. We are all bookriot.com people. We right? That, yes. We all, we, all, we all work there. Um, and it is the first major literary controversy of the year. I think probably stretching back a little while, we haven't seen a controversy like this around a book in quite some time. And it's worth diving into in a lot of different ways. Um, but first, I thought I'd start out with a bit of a summary of like how, how we got to now. Uh, is that okay, Rebecca? Yeah, yeah Lisa, that before sounds we great. Get started? So we've known a book about this book for a while. Um, it really had a coming out party, which we will get to at BEA last year, um, in anticipation of its publication this January quite a big to do. A lot of the the pre-publication story was starting to be written about it then. Got a big advance. Um, This author who has a Puerto Rican paternal grandparent, um, you know, wrote, decided, got interested in telling a story of migration from Latin America, South America into the United States and spent some time, quite a lot of time researching doing research on the novel, spent some time in soup kitchens, some some times all along um, the watchtower talking to people and wrote a novel. That novel is called American Dirt. It was the object, the subject of a three-day bidding war between multiple publication houses that eventually ended up in a seven-figure advance deal. It's not Janine Cummins' first book, um, so she's not a debut author, but no one knew her name really before this, I think it's fair to say. And we've known about it for a while, and it was coming, and there were some early rumblings that, may, is this a book? Is this an own voices book? Is this a diverse book? What, what do we call this thing? Um, and then, really, it got, the, you know, basically fuel on the smoldering embers of wondering about how to think about this book when Oprah picked it for her book club. I, I believe it was the day before publication, and that really brought attention in a way that really only Oprah can do to this conversation. And I'm not sure, and I think we should talk about this, how does this timeline play out differently if Oprah, Oprah doesn't make that pick? Are we having this conversation? Are people still, you know, what is the degree we're talking about this? What is the degree that that pick is emblematic or actually changes the narrative of what this book is about? Um, and just today, there was a list, uh, a petition basically published on LitHub in which 83 authors uh, of manifold backgrounds, um, many of them uh, Latinx, uh, saying, Oprah, please consider not giving this book spotlight. I think we could talk about that move, interestingly, they were not actually, they were not asking Flatiron to redact it. They now were asking Jeannie Cummins to give it up advance. Like that. It was really pointed at Oprah, which I think is very interesting, too. They say explicitly, this is not, a, this is not about censorship. This is, not, this is about choosing who to lift up. And I think that phrase really stuck as me stuck with me as maybe being at the center of what people are wondering about on on a larger scale. Now, a lot of people have their own opinions. It got, I think, um, the blurbs you would want for a book like this. You get Sandra Cisneros and Julia Alvarez. I don't know if you were going to go handpick blurbs from Latina uh, Latina authors that you would pick anybody else. I, I think I wouldn't if I was working in publicity, but also John Grisham and Don Winslow and, you know, basically giant commercial selling people. And now we have a different conversation. Um, 
And do I have the facts of the matter? Is there anything I'm leaving out at this point before we start talking about the ramifications, the nuances, the complexities, the rage, the frustration that those facts have brought about? I think that's mainly it. I think it also depends maybe on like where the spaces that you like inhabit, because I personally can say that this issue was brought to my attention before the Oprah thing. And maybe that's because I spend a lot of time on like Latinx book Twitter, but the rumblings were there. And then I think once she picked it and maybe perhaps precisely for the reason that you said is because this, you know, you could, everyone falls a little bit differently on whether or not they find Oprah's book club picks relevant. There's, you know, those people who immediately gravitate towards celebrity book clubs and some that don't. But um, it was interesting to me to know, yeah, once she picked it, obviously it kind of went nuts. And that's, I think, what brought it into a much larger conversation where I'm seeing like this book discussed in non-book spaces. Like, you know, like ton, that's, yep. I've actually mm-hmm. heard it on several podcasts this week that have nothing to do with the book world. Um, and in one of them realized that it is a big issue because not only did Oprah pick it, but she very much framed it as like the immigrant story you should be paying attention to, which is of particular interest to me considering that she has never featured a Mexicana, like, or a really a Latina writer in her book club, with the exceptions of, I think, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and maybe Isabel Allende, who are such like powerhouse writers on their own that they don't really need Oprah's help, you know? So this is where you start to kind of get me fired up, <laughs> and I will let you all chime in if you would like to. No, I, I think that the rumblings is the is a good way. Of, I think, notably, Rebecca and I were just talking about this when we did our winter spring preview. We had a long, or Rebecca had a long list, and American Dirt was on that because we were subject to the many of the, for I think wrong headed but kind of remarkable PR work that went into the launch of this book. Like you had Salma Hayek tweeting or Instagramming about it on her, like. People were working to do publicity oh, yeah. in a way that most mm-hmm. most regular books don't, and forget about that happens for Latinx books. I mean, that's not, I've never, I can't think of anything even close to it. You guys maybe could correct me if I'm wrong. But once we heard the rumblings, like, we're not interested in this. Like, I don't know if that's right or wrong. I, I feel pretty confident myself saying, if I'm not interested in it, that's that's on me. Like, I'll, I'll willingly say, whatever, I can be not interested in the book for whatever reason I want. But we're like, this is not a book we want to feature even in that list of 10, let alone if I were Oprah picking it, right? I think that's where it kind of caught me off guard is like, if Rebecca and I were like, yeah, let's let's talk about something else rather than that. And then Oprah picks as like, wow, we're we're like trains passing yep. in the night here. Does that sound right to you, Rebecca? Yeah, I think that's true. You know, I, I want to go back to what Vanessa was saying about the conversation and awareness around the conversation being different according to what spaces you inhabit. And I think that's Mm. a really critical part of it here that um, just this morning, and we'll cover this on the um, another episode, the next episode of the main show, there was another survey released by Lee and Lowe publishers showing that really since 2015, when they first did it, there's been effectively no improvement in diversity in the publishing industry. Um, And that means the publishing industry is still largely white. Very few of those people are inhabiting the Latinx book Twitter that Vanessa is talking about. And we look at, you know, Oprah as being a sort of scion and pulling up and featuring authors who do some like social justice and awareness kinds of work. But Oprah also inhabits a different kind of space and a different experience. Um, and wokeness is not a monolithic thing that a person acquires to um, to be um, considering all of the different identities and perspectives here. I think it's interesting that it's Oprah. Like I it would have still been upsetting if Reese Witherspoon were talking about this book, but that we we have some expectations around like that Oprah should be aware um, of 
what's in this and or should have seen it. And I think that contributes to the conversation too. Um, But this really goes to like, I think, I think this rings bells at every level and like every stop along the way of the publishing industry and how a book gets made of how, how did this book get made? Why was it given like a bajillion dollars? Why did they spend seven figures acquiring this book? And then of course, having to spend a lot of money to do the powerhouse marketing that you're talking about and really dig in to promote it and make that money back. Mm-hmm. Um, but those there, there are just not enough people in publishing who inhabit spaces that aren't white literary spaces um, to have been aware of this and talking about it in a way that could have interrupted it sooner. And so now we have this large scale conversation that that really should be happening. And Vanessa, I've been seeing it too. Like somebody was like, this is an entertainment weekly. Yeah, no, it's everywhere. <laughs> and yeah. Like and right. And I've, you know, my friends who just know that I do book things, but they're not book people have also been hearing bubblings about like what's going on and why are people mad at Oprah? And anytime that a book thing rises to that level, it's a it's a really big deal. And I think this is also connected then to like this is not just a conversation we need to be having in publishing, but we are having big cultural conversations yeah. around how we talk about these issues and who talks about them and identity and who gets to tell stories about people from different identities. And like, if you're talking about a story from an experience that's not directly yours, what are your responsibilities in there and how are you held accountable or not? And that rings into just larger cultural stuff that goes well beyond books right now. That was like a conversation that I had with myself when I first, um, really started to get wind of this is that I, I, I will just admit I'm a consummate overthinker. And um, so at first I was like, okay. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Yeah, we're yeah. on the right show. I'm like, okay, well, so let me like calm down. And because the first things I started yeah. to see was like, well, you know, up until very recently, she has herself written and not written like on a personal blog post, but written in like the New York Times that she identifies as white. But then, you know, came out the Puerto Rican grandma thing. And so one of my first reactions was like, okay, I don't want to get into that ugly space where I yeah. question, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't participate in the, you know, if whether you speak Spanish makes you Latinx or whether you are one quarter or one half or one sixteenth. Like, I don't like to get into that minutia because it's, I think, just pointless. But that being said, what Rebecca just said about the fact that there is such a lack of diversity in publishing just really hits the nail on the head for me with this thing because I've seen a lot of rhetoric, you know, online and, and all over the place that says, like, well, I read the book and I thought it was fantastic. And, you know, and this is from people who consider themselves, you know, quote unquote, woke and progressive and all that. I thought it was really interesting. But most of these people were not definitely not Latinx or just not Mexican. And that mm-hmm. is an interesting space to me because one of the main reasons why I would never seek to even just to make this about me, like, you know, write a book about a Cuban immigrant or a Guatemalan immigrant is because I would be so scared of, and I think rightfully, <laughs> getting some stuff stuff wrong and maybe hitting on stereotypes that, like, I wouldn't recognize. So when I get into the Oprah thing and how she, you know, said that she read it and she loved it and for all these reasons, that's why it's so important to have brown people in the room because Oprah is not a Mexican immigrant and would not have recognized half of those stereotypes. Whereas I, you can ask the girl sitting in this office with me right now, literally took this book and played like American Dirt Roulette and just opened it to like seven different pages and could immediately see things in there that was like, that's not Mexican Spanish. That's not a thing I would say. Mm -hmm. This is not a thing that (laughs) I listened to a podcast this morning by, um, 
it's it's the keeping it podcast but the host was or guest host was julissa arce and she's like let me just be real with you in this opening scene there's a quinceanera where there are 16 invitees and they're all sitting around listening to a radio any mexican will sit here and tell you you know what there's not at my quinceanera 16 people mm. it's a middle class family <laughs> in mexico that has like a decent amount of cash there are 200 people there and we're listening to banda like we're not listening it's gathered around <laughs> listening to ye old timey radio show but these are things that you wouldn't know Mm-hmm. And th- that right there is the part where you just yeah. like, of course, you don't recognize the stereotypes because there were no people in the room that would. <laughs> like... Yeah. And I, I think the the identity stuff is just so deeply connected to it. And it is tricky there. Like I, our understanding of our identities can shift over time. And so I think it's very possible that how Cummins understands her family background and her identity has changed. And it's also then, if that's true, it's also true that she has not done a good job in communicating and writing and exploring sure. what that means or could mean or should mean or should it mean yeah. for her work. And really, this points to me that we have a lot of work to do in publishing around what we understand an own voices story to be and some nuance around that, right? That it's not just like, well, this person is Latinx and so they can write any story about any Latinx person. Like own voices, I think is intended to be the story is coming from someone who has lived the experience, yeah. um, not just broadly, maybe tangentially associated with the experience in some way or not. Like the the ties here seem very loose and I'm a little bit confused about where Cummins is yeah. coming from or is supposed to be coming from in the same way that like my identity as a white woman doesn't entitle me to tell any story about any white woman and then be like, well, she's a white woman and I'm a white woman. So I know what I'm talking about. There are so many varieties and so many levels of experience there. And if you are writing outside your experience, because this raises that question. And one thing that I've seen all over the place is like, she shouldn't have written this book. um, And who's allowed to tell which stories. And I think we just have so much work to do on if you're if you're going to try to tell a story that is outside your experience, if you're going out of your lane, you really have a responsibility and a lot of work to do around the research and making sure that you do it well so that you're not talking about a quinceanera with 16 people sitting around listening to old time radio. There is to me an extent at which like there's, I don't know what the amount of research is that you can ever really do to completely understand a culture. And that's because honestly, I, and I'm ripping this from that very same podcast I mentioned, it's not an idea I came up with, but like they mentioned, and I, I would read a book that Janine Cummins wrote about like, hey, holy crap, I'm understanding my identity more because I am Puerto Rican and I'm coming to terms with the fact that I am Latinx and I never identified as that before. And I have a husband who is a a non-documented immigrant Mm -hmm. from Ireland, but that is a whole different conversation. Like I would read a book about her exploring all that and it would be on voices and it would make sense to me. Yeah. And I think the point that you're both circling around is these kinds of complicated, nuanced discussions about identity and own voices and who gets to tell what story would be, the stakes would be a lot lower if the stakes were a lot lower. Like if you look at the kinds of attention the book is getting, this happens to very few books writ large and zero books to my knowledge. If you know of one, podcast.bookwrite.com, I'd love to, we'll we'll do follow-up. If she didn't sort of get the shit for this story, for mm-hmm. this moment, the for story. this <laughs> campaign, for this, because you know what's not going to happen next? 
um, especially especially if there's a critique that a Latinx author writing about migration from Guatemala to the, to America, who is Guatemalan, is not going to get that pick because it's been used up. And that's just the yeah. truth. And and these books have been written <laughs> in addition to that because of the structural racism. There's just not that much space, so it feels like. Not only do we not get the space, the space that's there, you're going to give to this person mm-hmm. telling this bad story feels like a real insult. And yeah. throwing all your weight behind it and again calling it the <laughs> book on the issue is like, uh, it just makes me so like finger shaky. This is, right. yeah, I think this is really a perfect case study in what systemic racism looks like Mm. in an industry. And in that, you know, I would assume most of the people associated with this all the way through the process are not having outwardly racist discussions or even like racist thoughts that they're aware of. But we live in a in a white supremacist society. And this industry is predominantly white in a really significant way. And there are a lot of blind spots and just a lot of unconscious bias that's really damaging. So uh, an author presenting as white or as newly understanding her Latinx identity writes this story about this experience. It rings a bell with people in publishing who are predominantly white. It gets picked up by Amy Einhorn, who is white, and then spent seven figures on it. You're going to spend that much money to make a book. You have to spend at least that much money in publicizing it when it comes out and marketing it to try to sell that book and make and make good on your investment. So then you can tell the story that the book sold and people must have really loved it. And we did a good thing. We published a good book. And the doubling down that Flatiron has done in the wake of this has been really interesting. And I think that's part of why we're seeing things like these 83 authors addressing a request to Oprah is that it is it has become two things are clear to me. One of them is that the only entity that can really change this now is the publisher, and they're not going to. Right. And because it's clear that they, that pu- the publisher is not going to do anything about this, or so far has refused to even acknowledge that they've done something damaging. People who are upset and are looking for something to do about it are reaching in all of the other directions. So it's, hey, Oprah, please stop talking about this book. It's damaging. And like, you know, hey, bookstores, please don't feature this book. There's a St. Louis bookstore that has decided not to host an event with Cummins. And we're hearing about libraries that are deciding not to feature the book. And community, like members of communities are requesting that this book, you know, not be celebrated, if the publisher would acknowledge the damage here and would do something about it, like that's really the root of the problem. But they're not I, they're not going to. I don't think they're in a position where they feel like they could. Like, and that, there's scare quotes around could, yeah. but it, it would be very expensive to for them to acknowledge this was a bad idea. We were blind to the fact that it was a bad idea for all of the structural reasons you can imagine. And now we're going to try to fix it. I like the way to fix it is not spend a jillion dollars marketing it. I don't know if you pull it like this isn't a story if Janine Cummins had gotten your typical like $15,000 advance. I was going to ask that question for a midlist literary fiction novel. It gets it would get sent out to some reviewers. It would get some middling reviews. Some people would post about it on Instagram. Some other people would review it negatively and then it would go away. Like it wouldn't have had a huge marketing budget. It would have been like, oh, this is not that great. 
and then it would have died. But it, they're not going to let it die on the vine because they spent a million dollars to make it. I've actually heard, yeah, heard several and Latinx authors even say like, hey, I read it. And granted, there's a lot, I don't know, it's kind of split. I encounter a lot of people that are like, this is actually trash, like on top of everything else. And then there's the other half that are like, no, mm-hmm. it was actually like kind of, it was a page turner and kind of pulpy or whatever. But kind of exactly what Rebecca just said is like, if it didn't have the weight of that marketing machine behind it, I would have read it, had my feelings about it, been like, hey, you should read this or maybe you shouldn't. And then like kept it pushing. But because of all the buzz that it's had for all the reasons you just described, you know, here we are. And I am just to circle back to the bookstore conversation. I have noticed several more bookstores, including I think Romans in Pasadena, and which is a big store, and then several stores in San Diego's also cancel events. But the language around some of that has gotten really interesting to me because stores are claiming mm. that they're closing or canceling the events due to safety concerns. That seems it's loaded. very loaded. Mm, and in response, wrong? so there's this movement on Twitter that I encourage anyone to follow if you're wanting to kind of stay abreast of all this. It's um, hashtag Dignidad Literaria, which is um, literary dignity in Spanish. And it was spearheaded mm. by... Miriam Gurba, who is the writer of the sort of really big piece that brought this book to a lot of people's attention, where she says, like, hey, this book is a fake Steinbeck. And then um, David Bowles, who is a fantastic writer, and I think Roberto Cortavo, I I can't remember the name of the third author right now, but they've come out and said very publicly in a you know series of hashtags we don't want you to cancel your events we have not called for the cancellation of events we want to have a meaningful conversation please don't frame this as a safety issue like we we are wanting to have those tough conversations with you and if you're going to write a book that incites this kind of reaction be ready to talk about it and that is like me in stark shining lights on where i kind of stand on that um let's do a quick break and then we're going to come back i've got some more you know angles we can go here. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, let's pick up on the Grapes of Wrath thing because it's on the cover. There's a quote from Don Winslow saying, I don't remember, but basically comparing the book to Grapes of Wrath, which I think is an, I think is an interesting encapsulation of how the book is positioning itself 
and how it's positioning itself to be a giant hit, that is also part of the problem because it's a question of definity, right? That this is the definitive fictional account somehow because I'm guilty of this too when it comes to Grapes of Wrath. I don't think I've read any other Dust Bowl stories that I can think of. And, you know, Steinbeck himself, he lived in California. You know, there's some questions about how authentic and maudlin and melodramatic even the Grapes of Wrath is. So it is interesting to compare to that book because if we're going to have a definitive account, I don't think this is what, if you're going to be the authority, sort of the, to be the authority on how the American public imagines this moment in time and all of the problems and violence and silencing around migration into the U.S. Um, from south of the border, this just feels like the kind of thing, this is, it's not what you want. It's not what you, any, I don't think it's what anyone really wants when they think about, I want a story that actually tells me something about this story that I don't know. I think in people's heart of hearts, maybe they know that, but maybe I'm just, uh, maybe I'm being overly optimistic there. I, the way that I've been oh, seeing it talked about or in some of the conversation from people who have been recommending it and have praised this book is like, oh, well, it's humanizing. It humanizes mm-hmm. immigrants. It humanizes mm. the experience. It will help your middle-aged white ladies in book clubs have some empathy for people who are immigrating from Latin America or, 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 and who have had this experience, it will make them seem more human. And like, if you need that, that's already a problem. Huge. But I like, oh, <laughs> right. Like that's, and also like, it goes back to, this is not the person who should be telling this story. There's a real, you know, like it has a white savior flavor mm-hmm. to it. Um, if even if the author doesn't identify as white any longer, a lot of the people who have been saying great things about this book are white people who loved this experience. And it just I cannot help but think that this is very similar to the conversations that we had the like the literary internet was much younger. But when the help came out, and how humanizing it was of black women who worked in domestic like who, who were domestic workers and white women's homes and how those relationships were so sweet and maybe we didn't actually need to feel so bad about them and like that was a huge book club hit it was also published by amy einhorn like like these are people with like who continue to have like a lot of power in publishing and who have worked the system very successfully like this book is getting a lot of attention i think the conversation around the book has like vastly exceeded and overshadowed any conversation about the contents of the book itself. And I don't think that that was intentional. Um, I, I do think that it was intended to be like a page turner that people could feel good about having read and could feel good about having related to something and found something humanizing in it. And that's part of the book. Yeah, I want to do I, I guess it's like useful to point out, which I don't know that we, well, yeah, we have to talk about this, but that, you know, there are also some powerhouse Latin American, mm-hmm. like Latinx folks that blurred the book. <laughs> I was sitting here telling Sharifa yesterday that I learned that, you know, I, th- I think, again, I think it's Romans, but it's a bookstore in Pasadena that canceled an event with Janine Cummins and Reina Grande. And if you've never read Reina Grande, she's an amazing writer. Uh, one of her most famous books is a memoir called, I think, The Distance Between Us that chronicles her actual, like this actual experience of her, her mm-hmm. father first and then mother, and then eventually her having to cross the border, you know, all this good stuff. So I said out loud, like, oh my gosh, I cannot imagine two people you should not sit next to each other because <laughs> Reina would like eviscerate her. And then I see right. that she- And where's her seven-figure well, book? And also you know. she blurbed the book too. 
And so mm-hmm. that gave me a little bit of like, okay. And so that's when I started again, overthinker. I'm like, am I, a lot of folks have come out and said, and I think maybe even Reina, that to them, it is like worth it to bring this conversation to a national scale, even if it means it wasn't written by the right person. And that, mm-hmm. not saying that there's no credit to that, because maybe there is, but then, you know, the more you dive into the book, that's, I just had a hard time with it because, well, the immigrant experience itself is not a monolith and there are, you know, mon- immigrants from all places of life and countries, et cetera. This particular story, getting back to the humanization thing, is about like a middle class bookstore owner in Acapulco who has like tens of thousands of dollars in the bank and then makes this journey. Whereas again, if you have any understanding of like Mexican class structures and like politics and Silvia Moreno Garcia, author of, uh, you know, Gods of Jade and Shadow Primary, she's the one that pointed out like that, that actual story is you humanizing because like that woman in real life probably would have just booked a plane ticket to the States and like overstayed. Mm -hmm. This is something I'm very familiar being from San Diego. Um, (laughs) So you chose a story that sounded kind of relatable and cute for lack of a better term and so again if you're positioning the book as being like the book about an experience a i don't agree that you should just ever have to prove your humanity period (laughs) but then b in choosing i think what's like a softer and like i i I, this is where you really start to lose me i i just can't get on board i think too you know one of the things that's hard to deal with in in gauging critical response is that much like the latinx community isn't monolithic the reaction to the book among the Latinx book community hasn't been monolithic. And so part of that discussion, I'm glad to see happening, but also is difficult to navigate because like, does one Latinx writer blurbing it sort of uh, evacuate all criticism? Does one person criticizing it evacuate all plot? It's well, the answer is of course, no to both accounts. And so here we are in the middle. And again, I think it speaks back to if we just had more, examples, if we had more texts, that this could be part of a corpus of books that were big time, you know, publicized literary events, then we could feel okay about, well, this one didn't really do the thing, but there's going to be another one. But that there is, that we just kind of feel like there isn't going to be another shot for someone to tell a story like this makes it all so much messier and disappointing in its own way. And, and, and crucially, I think, to circle back to something Rebecca said about you know diversity in publishing, we talk about that in the show a lot, and sometimes it's hard to understand what that means about how this book came to be or how a different book didn't come to be, like to prove a negative. But one, one fact, maybe the most important fact of Janine Cummins' biography that hasn't been talked about is she spent 10 years working at Penguin, mm-hmm. right? That matters yeah. for these kinds of books. We see this happen a lot. And if you don't have Latinx writers in those jobs working, they don't get this kind of opportunity. Even our beloved Toni Morrison didn't really get a shot until she had been an editor at Random House for a long time. And so that's one of the things when we talk about why it matters. It's not just that those people, you know, have brown skin and work at a desk in Midtown. It's the kind of books that get made are different. And then they themselves become authors. A lot of people who work in publishing want to write a book. And this is what happens. And this thing that publishing does where there's one definitive story about an issue is certainly part of the problem also. Like we're only just starting to come out of a place where 
where we would hear from black authors that like, I went to this imprint or my agent shopped a book to this imprint and they didn't want to put me on the spring list because they already had a black book on the spring list. Like, I think we are really just coming out of the place where that's been very true. And it may still be true in some publishing houses and just not given voice to anymore because that's not the kind of thing you're supposed to say out loud in 2020. Um, that like there sh- we should have room for multiple stories about the immigrant experience for a lot of them. And publishing, if publishing had a had a broader and more diverse base of people choosing which stories get told, would have that. But it's like there's a private checklist somewhere of like, you know, editorial things to cover. And they're like, well, we did an immigrant story and we can feel good about that. And now we've done a slavery story and we can feel good about that one. And like moving right along, here's what our representation looks like. And the point that you made, Vanessa, about like actually whose story gets told in the book and what the situation that the characters are coming from is, I think is such an important one because the conversations that are presenting this book as like humanizing or like, oh, we're going to save some souls. Like the people who have been watching Fox News and who have horrible racist things to say about immigrants, like this book is going to humanize immigrants for them and they're going to change their minds. Like how is that how is that supposed to happen when you're reading a story about functionally a middle class person? I, I, tried, I tried to go back to the, like, the author and her response to this. Mm-hmm. And I tried to do the overthinky thing where I give her credit for like, maybe she really did sit down and just say, God, I, I really want this story to be told. And then that's when she did all this research. But I can't help but look at some of her actions in response to a she just seems like really reluctant. And her responses have been very much like, I can't help it if you don't like my book. And that is a strange you know but okay like i I guess maybe Mm -hmm. that would be my response because you're defensive about your art and i get that Mm -hmm. but there's a piece of me that just really really hopes i'm wrong in assuming because she worked in publishing and because she just took a good look around and said like what's up the moment like right now Mm -hmm. and i'm i really don't want to believe that she just grappled onto a story that she thought she could sell by and then this is you know a direct quote she's been quoted a lot by quote unquote humanizing the brown mass which is just like that one took took me out and then you know you both know Mm -hmm. because i've mentioned it like i Locked onto Twitter that day that it blew up, and when I saw it at a dinner that was put on by her publisher, that the centerpieces yeah. were decorated to look like barbed wire, I, I actually cried, and I, I feel sort of silly about that to some degree, and then also not. But if you really did spend as much time researching this issue, and it was so important to you, and you care about it so much, and these people and quote unquote, wanting to humanize them, how could you look at that for one second and not immediately go, hey, this is this is a problem. And then not only not Mm -hmm. see it as a problem, but then turn around 24 hours later and post a picture to Instagram of you getting a manicure with that same barbed wire design. I think that's the toughest look yeah. of the whole thing. I mean, I, 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 I can only imagine how, because I, I felt a, in my gut too, I was like, oh, oh no, oh no, 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 no. Like, there's a part of me that wants to, like, I think there's a lot of good intentions here. And, but, you know, we all know the, the most famous phrase about, exactly. long, you know, good intentions. Um, but that was the one where I was like, oh, there's something else going on here to which I can't really ascribe. Like, I think we could do a whole episode on like a close reading of yeah. the title and the cover mm-hmm. design and the blurbs and the birds with the bobbed yeah. wire on this black. It's... That was beautiful, I guess. And then is meant to, it's sort of a book clubby, Instagrammable Very. cover. But then it does have the barbed wire that mm-hmm. is the kind of thing that if you weren't really thinking about it, 
or frankly noticing at all, you might make a center. The centerpiece is with the barbed wire. I, I, I winced. I literally it's, winced. Like, and it's really hard to awful to come look back at it. from that for me, for me. Yeah. Well, especially knowing the makeup of people in publishing, like it's just extremely likely that the person who designed those centerpieces was a white person who like, yeah. I'm just, I think we should assume that at this point, who was like, I know we'll make some barbed wire centerpieces. Like there's just, it's such bad judgment. And her Cummins's response to the criticism and Flatiron's response is really like, uh, sorry, you yeah, feel exactly. that way, which is so dismissive. And Cummins is, um, it wasn't a direct statement, but she was asked about this at Winter Institute last week, which is a thing that the American Booksellers Association does every year is like continuing ed for indie booksellers. Basically, they all the publishers bring their big authors of the season and some booksellers at, were asking her questions about what was going on. And one of the things she acknowledges and the response is like, okay, maybe I wasn't the and I'm paraphrasing, like maybe I wasn't the best person to tell this story, but I'm not going to turn down that kind of money. Like it was, it was very lucrative for her to choose to tell this story, even if she had some misgivings or any awareness that it could be damaging or that she was not doing a great job doing it. And that then it just points right back to Flatiron, whose own statement was like, reiterating how they see the book and how they're positioning it. And we just hope that eventually readers will come to see it this way too. There's no real acknowledgement of any harm done. It's incredibly dismissive. And I think if, if there's any chance of the publisher really doing anything about this, it takes continued pressure and action. Like I think the only similar thing that we've seen was when Simon and Schuster was publishing a book or was set to publish a book by uh, Milo yeah. Yiannopoulos. There was such an outcry of readers, you know, like boycotting Simon and Schuster. And I, it's been a couple of years. I don't remember all the details, but then like Roxanne Gay very publicly pulled a book that she was going to publish with mm -hmm. Simon and Schuster because she didn't want to be affiliated with them while they were publishing Milo. And ultimately they pulled that title. Um, granted, they pulled it before the book came out. Um, but the this is a place where like, I just think Cummins and Flatiron, like, clearly, they're aware of the conversation. If they were going to respond, the responses should have been better. And it would have been at this point, probably better to keep their mouths shut. Yeah. Because like, yeah. sorry, you feel that way doesn't help anybody who's upset about this and it doesn't help them look like this is it's just a bad look all the way around you don't look good like here we have made a response here is our statement when the response is functionally like oh well you just don't understand what we're doing here and that to me is the kind of not insidious that's the wrong word um like the like what you just mentioned okay so milo yiannopoulos's book was ostensibly like just like hate Right. Like it was very you can kind of put him in a category like he is a hateful person with like a very specific message and it's intentional. Right. Like he he comes out full with, with his chest and like says what he's trying to say. And the really difficult and you know important part of this conversation is that I do not believe angry as she makes me <laughs> that Janine Cummins is a bad person or like, a you know, I don't know her, but from what I know that she went into this with like a malicious intent. I think she legitimately probably just wanted to tell a good story. And like you said, I don't know many authors who probably would turn down this like massive paycheck if it's presented to you. And that's why the diversity in publish publishing thing is yeah. important because I don't think she intentionally she, she didn't look at the barbed wire and think that's a problem. She didn't see the stereotypes in the book as a problem. And not, again, from a malicious standpoint, I just don't think she was aware. And that's what makes this, again, just that, that meaty conversation for me. Because I can put Milo in a corner and say, like, well, you're just... Mm. 
And whereas Janine, I don't think it's the issue is much bigger than she is. And Milo is, as you were saying, like, obviously a bad actor. And publishing was still going to give him a lot of money to make a book. Indeed. (laughs) Indeed. Yeah. And I I think, you know, Rebecca, you were saying you're talking about the publisher and the author. I think that the way I've come to understand them and tell me what you guys think is that they are symptoms of a larger problem. Like that there were multiple houses bidding seven figures. This is not some weird one-off kind of thing. This is representative, not idiosyncratic. So I think that's maybe something that people that don't pay attention to this um, writ large or in specific communities, like, you know, I I don't follow Latinx book Twitter, but I can only imagine that's even more important in those spaces to say like, this is this is not sort of a comet from the sky. This is some of some of the depressing part is it's not a surprise. I mean, right. is that it's not a surprise at all. It's just yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. Um, what 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 what's remains interesting to you guys about this on a macro scale? Like it, Kelly wrote something in our Slack about a different book, but I think it spoke to kind of part of my reaction to this personally was some of the disappointment was not to be surprised, but felt like maybe we we knew better than this by now. And then to, and and I guess it's wishful thinking because clearly it happened. And just to realize, kind of like when Rebecca, when we talked about the Goodreads Choice Awards, like, geez, the, the overbearing whiteness, like I thought we were making some progress and boy, this seems worse than it was four or five years ago. I think that's one thing mm-hmm. that's really stuck with me is that the that the needle isn't moving on those numbers of people working in publishing um, from historically underrepresented communities, maybe we've talked about it enough. Uh, we, I felt like we've talked about it for so long that that's enough. And I think I'm relooking at that, frankly, for myself. It's like, oh, this, you said things, we talk about it, but it's still, the talking hasn't gotten the job done for whatever reason. And then this is the result of that um, in a way that I, I didn't really see. Um, what's interesting, what, what are you thinking about um, coming out of this at this point? For me, it's kind of what you just said, which is just that I don't I don't think the conversation is old. I, th- I mean, I, I might have maybe felt that way for a second, but I'm sort of reinvigorated mm-hmm. by this because, mm-hmm. you know, and this is not by any means a new narrative, but how many times have you heard of a person of color, you know, quitting a space that they were hired into because they immediately got that sense that they were being hired to tick off like a checklist and who were hit by like microaggression. So uh, my question is like, why, why isn't like, why do people, why are we, hmm, I'm so inarticulate when it comes to this because I'm angry, but Mm. how are we going to change it? Like in theory, you're saying it's important to you. You're hiring people maybe from the bottom, but are they making it to the top? Like your our our focus on diversity can't be performative. It has to, I think, be right. a much. Ugh, there's just there is way more work to do. Like, do I think it's you know better than it might have been? Probably. Um, but I, my biggest takeaway here is just that we're nowhere where we need to be. And what the part that really is just weighs heavy on my shoulders now is like, and do we want? And by we, I don't mean me so much as the folks you know at the top. Like, do you want to be? Like, are you actually interested in getting mm-hmm. here, or is mm-hmm. it just so that you can say you did? <laughs> That's where my mind has been as well, that maybe we've come some way in like the diversity of book coverage. The Vita count has shown us some things. Publications have some publications have moved the needle in some ways on who's reviewing books and what kind of books they're reviewing and who's who those authors are and what identities they represent. But the industry itself is where the books get made. And like I'm I feel like I'm a broken record about this, but this is just one really perfect illustration of 
how the system works and how damage and harmful ideas are perpetuated when the system is basically made entirely of white people. And like, I don't know if the solution here is for publishing to bring in people from other industries who have experience doing real diversity and inclusivity work. And how do you change that all along the pipeline, not just by bringing in more people of color as interns, but promoting all the way throughout like publishing is very incestuous. People move back and forth between publishing houses all the time. It, and it's also a very closed system. It's I, like I'm having trouble in a decade in the industry thinking of any time that like a prominent executive has been hired into publishing from an outside industry. And other businesses do this all the time. Other industries do this where, hey, here's our weakness. Let's find somebody who has success doing this somewhere else and bring them in. Um, I think that publishing might really need that or at least need like a push to make their plans around diversity and inclusivity be transparent and be publicly available. Like I, I need to believe, I hope that the big publishers have had meetings about this, that they've had some discussions at the HR level and about hiring and, and what they intend to do. It's clearly has not been sufficient by any stretch yet or effective in, in changing, especially who's reaching the higher levels of the industry. There's real work to do. And maybe having to be publicly accountable for that in some fashion would help. Like, here's our plan. Hello, world. Here is our plan for how we are going to fix this problem. And it is a problem and it does need to be addressed. But it's like the industry itself and who's in the industry is going to have to change. Like white people are not just going to get better at overcoming their bias and selecting books by people of color that tell stories appropriately and that do own voices the way that own voices is intended to do like by virtue of being white people in a white supremacist society we can't like we can maybe become more aware but we can't fix it without bringing in people whose voices need to be heard and represented and giving them the power and giving them the platform and giving them the money to acquire books for seven figures that do it well. Yeah, I keep getting this vision in my head. I, I'm like thinking of Congress, but like where like mm. it can be all great and fine for you to sit in a boardroom, right? And have this conversation like we need to do better about diversity. But if the people in that room are also all white, <laughs> like you need to yeah. just how how are you going to do anybody it? right like you could sit with me and my family and have a conversation about something we don't know about and we might feel really good about the plan that we made for that thing but the fact of the matter is if i just don't know that thing then i don't really have a place to be making that plan without some like outside <laughs> inclusion <laughs> so right. i think you hit that nail like right on the head i think we're gonna end it up there guys um vanessa rebecca thanks so much um we'll see what happens i'm not sure how this is going to play out i am looking through closed eyes when my Publishers Weekly comes next week with the sales numbers. Me too. All right. We'll talk to you guys later. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.